You're listening to Experts in Their Field, a podcast from the Agricultural Science Association, generously sponsored by Ulster Bank. Hello, listeners. My name is Anne-Marie Butler, and I'm the president of the Agricultural Science Association. I'm delighted to welcome you to this, episode 13 in our ASA podcast series, Experts in Their Field. ASA Council member John Tobin was delighted to catch up with Mount Bellevue native Joseph Keating. Joseph details his career path since his time in UCD and the extensive experience gained from his time with Chagask, NFU, AHDB and his current role as Agriculture Manager at Co-op in the United Kingdom. Joseph discusses the unique community spirit associated with farming, the value of network, his observations from Brexit thus far, and the required focus on climate, sustainability and biodiversity. ASA thank Joseph for his time and wish him every continued success with his career. Hello everyone, Uh, my name is John Tobin and I am a council member with the Agricultural Science Association. Uh, Today I'm delighted to be speaking with Joseph Keating in this next episode of the ASA podcast series titled Experts in Their Field. Uh, Joseph is a member of the agriculture team with the co-op uh, retailer in the UK and is formerly is an ag, ag graduate um, and formerly held roles with the National Farmers Union and the Agricultural and Horticultural Development Board um, in the UK. So many thanks for joining me, Joseph. Uh, well, thanks for the invite, John. It's, um, it's nice, nice to get asked. I can't say I get many of these offers. So yeah, <laughs> it's nice, nice to do it. Um, I guess as a start, uh, could you give us a bit of information on your background and how you decided to pursue a, a, a career in agriculture? Um, so, yeah, my background, small family farm in the west of Ireland. So I'm from East Galway, uh, Mount Bellew, um, originally, actually right beside the Agricultural College in Mount Bellew. So I grew up right beside it. Um, so, yeah, to be honest, there was never really any clear plan, but I've always liked, I liked the farm. I've I really loved growing up in a farm and the community spirit of farming I think is unique and it's 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 a really it's a great way of, of growing up as a child. So always was interested in it and never really had any clear paths. So I did agricultural science in secondary school. I liked it. I knew I liked farming. So I suppose for me it was kinda of, I kept that theme going um and, and went on to do kind of agricultural science, animal science in U C D. So that's kind of how it all started is really just from you know, growing up in the farm and kind of nice, nice um, getting out and about um, and liking the liking the community feel of it that made me kind of want to stick with it. Okay, and then from from UCD, then your first job post college was with Chagas as a a good farm practice advisor. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. I think well, I think it's the um, it's a nice way of saying a rep a reps planner. But I think that's what me um, that's what my business card said. So yeah, I was. I was lucky enough, probably back in, so I finished in 07 and I was actually doing a bit and pieces for a few months. I think I was doing soil testing um, for the office in, in Van Maslow. Um, but then the jobs came up. So there was two year contracts with Chagas. Um, and luckily I got that and I was I was actually based in Mayo for the two years. So between Ballinrobe and Westport. Um, yeah, it was, it was a brilliant experience. It was a real eye opener, actually. I think um, there was a, a, a it was for me it was just to see the different types of farmers um, that came through and the support that Chagas offered I think it was um yeah it, ma- it made you realize the value of of having that network across the country 
Okay. And from there, then, um, you moved across the water over to England and um, started a role with the National Farmers Union as a National Livestock Advisor. Could you tell us a little bit about the National Farmers Union and say your role with them at that time? Yeah, so the National Farmers Union is, you know, the equivalent to the to the IFA, really. It's it's the largest um, farming organisation or farming representative organisation in the UK. So in um, in a few represented kind of in a few in England represent English farmers and Welsh farmers. So the two unions were linked. I was mainly on the English side. So, you know, with that, we have, I think at the time, around 50,000 members um, and they all had to, you know, to be an NFU member, you pay a subscription. Um, so they, you know, subscribe. And with that, you, with what I suppose what I did in the role as a national livestock advisor was around beef and sheep. Um, when I first started, for example, there was a lot of work on the EID and sheep. So trying to influence government, influence how the legislation will be implemented, you know, trying to make it practical. I suppose that was a simple example of what I did. Um, what was really nice about that role is it gave you a great insight into how the industry works. So you met with retailers, you met with um, processors, farmers um, and different government agencies. So it was, a, it was a really good learning experience in terms of how UK agriculture works. OK, and then from the National Farmers Union, then you moved. Uh, they were based in Stonely Park and you stayed in Stonely Park and moved over to the Agricultural and Horticultural Development Board. Or I think back then it was previously called Eblex. Yes. Um, just for yeah. our listeners. Could you explain, first of all, um, kind of uh, the AHDB or EBLEX, as they were previously called, what's their role in the beef and lamb industry? So the, they're, a, they're a levy body. So they're a statute um, a levy body. So it's it's what it's really described as a, as a power of fiscal tax is the technical term. So when a beef or sheep farmer um, sending animals into slaughter, that levy would be deducted um, on that. Um, I think you know it's over four pound and oh, I'm going to get in trouble. I don't remember. But I think it's about sixty, sixty-five p in lambs and four pound and five. I think on on beef. So that levy um, would come to us, and part of that our role was, um, so a, for example, we covered from market development, market promotion, so doing overseas trade events, um, trying to get beef access to other countries, to domestic promotion, um, down to knowledge exchange events. So it was. It, it, I suppose to an easy or an easier example would be a mix between Chagas and Bordia in some respects. So it's kind of a, a hybrid of both, but with a lot less money. Okay, all right. And um, you during your time there at the AHDB, um, the Brexit referendum took place. I guess you were you were there kind of in the run up to Brexit and then kind of the aftermath. Um, could you talk around that kind of in the run up to the event uh i recall you know the the farm farming industry was kind of maybe split on the decision on whether to you know vote to leave the eu or, or not and then kind of you know post the event like there was a sense of shock um that the decision was actually made to to leave the to leave the eu could you talk around that and kind of what were the standout memories for you during that time Actually, I think my, my first memory has been on a bus in Denmark with ASA members uh, for one of the tours. And I remember some thinking it would never happen. And I wasn't as convinced. I won't, I won't say I called it by any means because I, I probably would have put a bit on it. But I think um, 
you know, farmers like the rest of the UK were fairly split down the middle on it. Um, it wasn't an easy, you know, at the time as a levy body, because we're a, a tax, we are responsible for government. So, you know, we were very careful that we only talked about the facts, possible impacts, but had no opinion on it because it wasn't, you know, we were we were an arm's length body of government. But it, it was interesting. I think a lot of promises were made. Um, you know, red tape is a huge issue, like, you know, here, like it is anywhere else. There was a lot of promises about, you know, if you're fed up with Brussels and you're fed up with red tape, you know, would that'll be gone almost the next night if we vote out. So there was there was a lot that was very appealing for some. Um so it was obviously the you know, farmers, um, like a lot of people felt that maybe the UK wasn't deciding enough of its own rules and how it wants to govern itself um, in terms of farming as well. So that was that fit into it. There's, there's many different reasons why um, why people voted the way they voted. Um, and it's I think what was interesting at the time, there was a level of shock um, in terms of the you know the outcome. Um, but there was optimism as well among some people. So it's it, it's been interesting. Um, it's definitely uh, been different to observe and watch and listen. Um, I think really now we're we're starting to see the impacts of it, though. We're starting to see how Brexit is starting to feed out. We're also starting to see if all those promises of removed red tape will live up to what has been said. Um, at the moment, we have same same level of regulation we've always had, plus um, draft and new environmental bills. So it, it seems to be increasing rather than decreasing, but time time will tell on that one. Yeah, I I also remember around that time, kind of some of the farmers would say, you know, um, whether the decision that they were going to make was, you know, would I vote with my heart or would with my head, um, and then kind of post Brexit, um, some of them, you know, that maybe voted to stay, but kind of now the view was to get Brexit done. Do you think there's still the same? appetite there that you know to to make the decision to leave the eu or do you think maybe if they had to vote today would they go vote for a different outcome i'm, I'm nervous around those debates a little bit because it's done you know it is done and whatever your views pro or against um it's still done so yeah. for me it's it's i think what's important is trying to hold people to account to what they've said and what's been promised and you know we've seen the challenges for the likes of the northern ireland protocol I think you're far better focusing on how we move forward rather than trying to relive the referendum. I think it's been it's been very divisive and it's still everything still goes back to leave and remain. You know, even all the debates still somehow gets pulled back in, you know, either you're just a remainer or you're just a leaver. And I think that's to be honest, it's a waste of energy now at this stage. So it is how we how we move forward. Um I think I think with Brexit though, what's very hard is you're trying to get people to vote for the status quo, and it's not just farming. You know, there's a lot of people. You're telling them everything is good and everything is fine and stay in the EU, whereas maybe their lives aren't good and maybe they feel like well, actually they need a change. And whether it was this is the change is is the right one, but trying to tell someone if you vote yes or if you vote to stay in the EU, it's you're voting for what life is like now, but for some. That wasn't necessarily an appealing, appealing proposition. So people, some, not everyone, and this is the I think where everyone looks for one reason. People vote for many different reasons, and actually, some people had really good, well thought out reasons to vote out as well. So there's no, there's no one answer. But I always think defending the status quo when it isn't working for everyone is a challenge. I think that's what fed into Brexit as well, and for farmers, some farmers felt like they weren't 
making money or what you know a lot of regulation and how could it be any worse trying something else okay uh, and um, just just to bring it back to say your roles um with say the nfu and the ahdb say you know helping and supporting livestock farmers um as an irish person you know with an irish accent was there times say when you were seen as the competition um when you were out on the road say meeting uh, farmers or at certain events yeah, there was always um, always an element of good humour. I would say when I first uh, first started, I think um, you know I, I used to make the joke that I was a spy um, for the Irish industry. When I when I joined the National Farmers Union, um, I did invest in a mug that had a hundred percent Irish beef on it, and I made my chairman drink from it every now and again when they came into the room. So he he didn't particularly like that, um, but it was all in good spirits. I think what was interesting is. I'll be honest, I never truly grasped the impact of Irish agriculture and its place and status, if I'm being honest, on the world. And I think it, it was an eye-opener working in the UK and seeing the impact it does have. Um, and, I, you know, not to big us up, but I don't think you really get that until you see it in another market. Um, so that's what I found as a big eye-opener. You know, we did, I think, you know, there was one incident where someone started at a livestock auction market having a few digs about Irish processors and what they thought of them. And then they go, do you want to do, say a few words now? And I kind of said, well, my accent is probably not the best time to start speaking. But by and large, you know, I, I can't say like they never, no one's like any humour. Like if you meet someone from a different county, you know, in Ireland, there was never any, um, ne never anything because you're Irish. I think what I always found more with farmers is as long as you're as honest as you can be and they don't feel like you're taking them for a mug, I've never found any issue with, with having you know different accent or being from Ireland. Sure, sure. And um, you know, then in twenty twenty, you decided to hang up your wellies and um, you moved over to a role at the co-op. Um, before we speak about your role at the co-op, um, could you explain a bit about how the co-op actually works? Um, I was reading up on it online. It's quite interesting. Say you're. First of all, you're a consumer-led co-op, um, but you're not just involved in kind of food retailing. You're involved in energy, funeral care, legal advice, a whole raft of different services um, for your members. So maybe could you just uh, explain a bit about the co-op or what is the co-op and how it works? Yeah, so it's 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 the UK's you know largest cooperative movement. I think it was founded in the 18, 1860s, the Rochdale Pioneers. Um, was where originally all started um so like it and it's grown from there um so it's you know it's a business that's truly you know it is cooperative and we do live that kind of within our our own kind of staff and beliefs and kind of objectives that feeds all the way through it's kind of doing what's right being fair so like the tagline or the the kind of for the co-op is you know cooperation for a fairer world so that's kind of really ingrained within the business so yeah, it is it is multifaceted. We did have other aspects, and we you know there was a cooperative bank which um, I think was sold out a number of years ago. Um, but so for us, yeah, the primary primary roles is obviously food retail. We've about our main our focus is convenience. We're not you know con you know convenience medium sized stores. That's kind of our area. Uh, we have about two two and a half thousand shops spread right across um, the UK. Um, and about 70,000 employees. And then obviously within that group, we're the largest funeral service provider um, in the UK. 
and we're also a shipping insurer and then they have legal services and then you know the last number of years we started co-op energy as well which is renewable energy um at the moment that's more business to business rather than consumers but that's starting to grow as well so it is yeah it's, it's a for me it was it was an eye-opener sitting on meetings and hearing updates from um from funeral care <laughs> and hearing what they're doing and then i suppose the last thing we've we've started to do as well we've got involved in wholesale so nisa is a wholesaler which does you know more like the traditional corner shops um and we've just bought that and acquired that so that's now starting being come part of the co-op business so we can get you know hopefully sell more of our co-op products in more local stores so even if they're not a co-op store um if they buy from nisa they have the opportunity to sell some co-op produce so that would be really interesting for us as well okay and like i guess you know in in the current environment you know we're in the middle of a pandemic i know people are starting to get out a bit more but say from does it present challenges for a kind of a convenience retailer where maybe people are make trying to limit their journeys um for shopping or or even like you know they're not commuting as much does that have an impact on the business um for yourselves yeah i think it's i think what well, the lockdown had had definitely had an impact you know I, I started in um in december really so i'm still relatively new but it took me seven months um yeah i think it was seven months before i actually met my whole team and the manager so that's a big big change to even from a business having people start roles and never physically meet anyone so that has an impact in, ter- in terms of lockdown most retailers all did well at the at the start um and and the cooperative was the same you know when people maybe try to buy less but you know if you remember back at the start there was worries about shortages there was worries of you know a bit of panic panic buying so we you know there was sales were good but obviously we where you had to do a lot of investment is in the store making it safe making it COVID secure and also making it secure and safe for your staff so there was a lot of um there was a lot of cost but uh, you know the co-op you know has done well the last 12 months I think what's not known really is how things will settle down and um, you know I think online it wasn't I think it sped up online rather than reinvented it as such you know online was growing um but this has really been just like removing the the plaster um just what right uh, stripping it off and going full full leather at it so you know for the cooperative because we are convenience and um, we have partnership with um I think it's Deliveroo where you know within a certain mile radius of your house you can order you know your your co-op products and you can shop in the co-op and get them delivered and um, probably within an hour or so so that's that's kind of the line we're going down and that's been really successful and um, so that's that's grown for us we've tried it in a number of stores and that's that's growing um every day and actually it's growing sustainably and, and start you know there's a shorter turnaround in, ter- in terms of starting to make a bit of money i think what's interesting a lot of online when they first started some of them still don't necessarily make any profit um it's long-term investments so you know our one was a bit more established to be sustainable and, and grow sustainably so it's it is interesting to watch i think what we have seen in the last 12 months you know from my side be um meat and dairy have done really well especially creams people have gone back to scratch cooking and trying different things and so creams and butters did well at, at the start and no one can buy flour so you had the cream and butter but you didn't have the flour um so it's a lot of a lot of drives in that in the last few months we have seen the people going back to more traditional big shops so it but again we don't know how that will swing back around again um where people start dropping in a bit more so but again for the likes of the co-op people are holidaying or staying in their local communities more or 
you know, holiday within the UK. And as I said, we have stores, two and a half thousand spread right across. So there's where you maybe might lose out in a city centre, would you gain from somewhere else? But this, there's still a lot of known, unknowns in those areas in terms of what yeah. the impact will fully be. And I guess um, amongst, you know, your members are essentially your customers, but uh, how is value shared amongst your members? And say, as a, as a customer, a consumer, what would be the motivation to um, to shop at a at a co-op uh, store as opposed to maybe going to a, a rival? So yeah, I think that then so in the, in the co-op, um, and I really should get the figures right, but I think before a number of years ago it was like you know for every pound you might got four p back or or you know ten pounds you got four, but the last number of years decided to change that. So a real key bit for the for the co-op is community it's a it's a huge driver of what we do and how we support our communities so what when you shop at the co-op if you're a member and you you know you pay one pound and you're a member of the co-op and that means you're entitled you know you know, as long as you spend a certain level you're entitled to have a vote and have a say in the agm but also with that membership and you shop in the co-op um you can select the local charities you'd like to donate to so instead of giving necessarily all the reward back to the consumer we we split it with our membership so that, you know, for example, in, in my app, there's two local charities. So every time I shop, um, a donation is made to those charities. And that's always something that <clears throat> I think was really nice. I think it was about 15 million, I think is the number last year we donated um, through that scheme. So through people shopping and selecting who they want to support. Um, I think about 15 million pounds was raised. So that's mm-hmm. it's really nice to see. And then, uh, again, another part of the co-op, um, we're heavily involved in fair share. You know, we've partnered. Um, and we support, you know, what, you know, like some Marcus Rashford is doing in terms of raising and, you know, food poverty for children. And um, we've also recently rolled out um, across a number of areas, fridges, so where if, you know, product, instead of having food waste, how can we donate like a fair share and where we put our, you know, food that's getting close to its use by or sell by date into these community fridges that can be distributed and used um, for people most in need. So the, the co-op is very driven by that and then our members um you know there's a number of members are very in tuned and that's what makes them want to shop in the co-op because they know we we do it for the right reasons um and what we do what we say we'll do we'll do um so it's um you know you're part of part part of it i think is, is the way of putting it okay and then as as your role you're on the agriculture and uh fisheries team so what exactly does that role involve and maybe what's kind of a, a typical day for you or is there such a thing as a typical day? No, like I'm, I'm, I'm beginning to learn there's there's no point in having too much of a plan because things do come very fast. So it's, it, is, it is an eye opener. It is interesting to work in retail, the speed, um, the demands and also the various different demands and requests on a retailer. So it is, it's really interesting to be, to kind of be involved in it just from a personal point of view. But my role um so i manage the beef lamb and dairy for the for the co-op so i kind of have the overall responsibility um from the producer side of you know our relationship with us with our farmers our requirements what we ask of them um but also you know we look at coming down the road of sustainability climate change what measures are we putting in place to kind of show that we're we're doing our bit to respond um so i very much work um so my role really is a link for the co-op with the primary producer um, what we can do, what we can deliver, but also with the commercial team, we have a social goals team, um, we have an ethical trade team, we have a food policy team. So there's 
it's very much linking up those different areas and also being a voice for our farmers um and to represent them as well so it's it's i'm very conscious it's, it's not a one-way street you know we we have to listen to what our farmers you know we need to inform them but also we need to listen back and making sure we're working together um to to respond and then we do okay um one of the things i noticed from my own time in in the uk is that retailers seem to have um, a big involvement or a lot of engagement with say directly with producers um i was wondering kind of what's the motivation behind that is it more out of tradition or is there a driving factor um that that came about yeah i think i i want to know all the history to it but i, I think what happened in the uk probably 10 or 15 years ago there was um a lot of focus, especially on dairy, on farmers' returns, and the or the lack of them, I should say, and the challenges in the industry at the time. And there was a lot of marches, a lot of protests, a lot of um, you know farmers rightly you know worried about their futures and kind of putting pressure on retails to respond. So kind of out of that, probably two thousand eight onwards, that's when you probably started seeing retailers respond with um, your direct aligned or your aligned groups. So your your bigger retailers, so Sainsbury's, Tesco's, ourselves, setting up um, kind of supply relationships with our with farmers, starting with dairy. And I, I think with from that then is realizing you well, you need a an agricultural team to work with these groups mm-hmm. and to drive these changes. So I think that's kind of where some of it grew out of. Um, <clears throat> and also there's um you know there's a lot growing in terms of animal welfare in the last you know when you think about the last ten years, animal welfare was huge. Antibiotics was very important. And for the for retailers to show, or to how do you impact those changes, you need an agricultural team really to work with your producers to kind of drive these changes through your supply chain um, and work them to deliver what's expected from a consumer. So, you know, I think the last 10 years, it's really been animal welfare, antibiotic use, and, you know, and you need that relationship with farmers to deliver on it. Yeah, yeah. And um, you mentioned sustainability there already, um, and you know it's a big issue no matter what industry um, one is involved in. But say, could you talk a little bit about um, the efforts the co-op is making in this area? I know, like you're doing, you've um, you've initiatives with say um, bags, and then also in your energy department as well. I think there's a, an awful lot of efforts being made in that area too. Um, so yeah, no sustainability is is huge. Um, it it's I think as I said, I think the last ten years when you look back, animal welfare antibiotic use were the big drivers. They're not going away by any means. But I think the area of sustainability, climate change, biodiversity, those the big, you know, that's the next big thing decade that shows response. So we recently just launched our ten point plan of how we're responding to these changes and where we want to get to as as a cooperative. Um so that came out at the end of May. Um, and part of that is our supply base. So working with our farmers, I think it's point three on it, is um how do we work with farmers to to make those changes and reduce our overall carbon footprint, but do it in a, in a sustainable and fair and ethical way. So that that is that pressure is definitely there. Our co-op energy is renewable energy. Um part of that being set up is you know we have two and a half thousand stores. So for example, so you know that's a good place to start. Um and then we have our depots and then we have our own funerals. So there's as a business, there was an opportunity within our own business to try and um, get more you know, for our energy, but also um, more renewably sourced. Um, so that made sense. But again, even when we do a retrofit of it or upgrade a new shop or build a new shop, um, the impact 
and the you know the, the, the resources that go into it is all assessed as well so it, it goes right across which is um again which is, is really interesting it's not just one thing over another or you know it's with a business like this it's trying to look at every area where you can drive change but we do know you know especially on the room and inside rumens um just in the carbon footprint when you look at the number and try not to get into any bit debate around carbon sequestration you know ruminant animal does does release carbon um so how do we have a balance i suppose my role on sustainability really is how do you thread that needle where you balance carbon and efficiency but also um you know systems that people want to buy from i don't think we should be driven by a carbon number alone i think it's important but there's more to a farm than just a carbon number um there's the environment and the farm it's within and i you know one of the things i'm hoping to do really is to highlight the good stuff as well so for me it's you know when we look at environment and biodiversity my my first thing is before we say what we do extra let's let's see what we do already and communicate that and you know if we can improve and move forward it's for me it's kind of maintain what we have and and improve and expand where we can um so it's getting that language right um i think sometimes you know the industry and i, I know it's similar in ireland <clears throat> i don't i worry we're coming a bit too polarized everyone seems to have an excuse to fall out with each other now at the moment so you know there is moderates and there's a there's a way in the middle that we need to find um and bring people together with us so that's that's kind of where i am at the moment and at the and i'm working on our kind of sustainability climate change biodiversity strategy for the co-op on primary producer side all right and i guess you know kind of agriculture in general in the uk maybe at something of a crossroads in terms of policy proposals you know for example a proposal to pay maybe small farmers to exit and um you know new trade deals being signed with for example you know the the recent announcement of the australian uh, uk free trade agreement could you give us some insight in terms of those uh, developments in the uk and maybe what challenges they're going to pose for the industry going forward or, or even opportunities um yeah, I think there's definitely going to be challenges and opportunities. I think there's there's two, there's probably two sides really. There's the policy change. So, you know, single farm payment has been is being phased out. Um, we know that's going. There's still a bit unclear what's going to replace it. So there's different models being trialed at the moment. One is like a sustainable farming in, uh, initiative. Um, but again, that's being defined. I think you know, the level of money that's going out in terms of single farm payment. Um, it is protected ring fence, but I, I don't I don't see the same level of income um, farmers are going to be able to draw down in, in future schemes. Um, so there's there's definitely going to be financial pressure on businesses in terms of what happens that single farmer disappears, the payment disappears. How will the business look and how can it, it stand or what does it need to do to change? Um, so I think that's the that should really be the kind of four to farmers' minds over the next three or four years really is where their business is at and, and what can what can they do. But then on top of that, there is going to be wider challenges. Um part of Brexit and part of the the narrative around Brexit is, you know, global Britain and you know striking new trade deals and free trade thinking and a free trade economy. You know, what does that mean for UK agriculture? You know, one hand, the government says they will not compromise UK farm standards, and then other side, they're they're agreeing trade deals. So it's it to be interesting to see how that pans out. But there will be increased competition of some sort, um, 
and I suppose it won't just be Irish beef and there will be it'll be you know I think whatever impact it will have here I think it'll probably have a bigger impact on Ireland um, because of the reliance especially on beef in the for the market here um, so there is significant change but there will be opportunities I think for farmers in the last few years or a number of years who run a business and are really focused on their costs and who are trying to farm without single farm payment and a number of farmers already do do that you know it's not everyone draws it down some especially you know for like the tenants to farmers where some of that single farm payment has to go back or it's part of the rent agreement so farmers you know there will be opportunities for farmers to grow and expand um but i think you know we there's a lot of talk about the new zealand model how they did it but i think people forget you know still when they got rid of their you know farm payments in the late 80s or in 80s um it also caused a lot of pain as well so we kind of forget about that um so it, yeah i think it'll it'll be interesting there was a talk of a of a of a lump sum payment for farmers to retire out it's got mixed response here i think um i think we sometimes we forget as much as we like to say farming is a business and it should be seen as such there's also more to farming than than the business side of it um there is the attachment to your farm and um, i don't think that's always easily understood or quantified so i think change will happen some will be quicker than others and some will, will hold out as long as they can yeah yeah and what what would be the sentiment would you feel or would the sentiment vary you know between say you know because agriculture in the uk there's a lot of variance you know there's kind of uh uh, small scale kind of livestock farms may be similar to what um, we might have in Ireland and then on the other end of the spectrum there's kind of these uh, massive large scale farms you know big massive arable units and and maybe even livestock units too it, would there be say the larger scale businesses would they have maybe would they be looking to the future with optimism that there'd be opportunities to, to grow their business or would there be kind of um uh, sense of nervousness in the industry i think it there's, there's nervousness all around i think with bigger businesses they're not always more profitable um it was one thing you know when you look at some figures especially for some arable businesses they're not you know there's there's still risks and challenges um for those businesses with the removal of single farm payment there's always economies of scale no doubt there will be some businesses that get bigger i think there's another dynamic in the UK market where, you know, the tax um, incentive of buying land, you know, one of our biggest landowners in the UK now is is Dyson, um, the private landowners. And obviously he, he does run it as a good agricultural business, but there's a, there's a tax advantage as well for those, for those things. So, um, or we have Jeremy Clarkson showing his farm. So there's, there's challenges of people who want to buy the land as well. But I think where the opportunity lies, um, is for businesses who know their business and know what they're doing and i think if you're going to take a risk if it's a smaller farmer that wants to expand because they run a really good efficient business and they know the numbers well they're probably just as much advantageous as a bigger farmer who doesn't really have the same handle on their costs so i think it's you know you know i can't predict how lending would work but i think it's for me definitely the people that are most advantaged are the good businesses who are running a good business now um, and want to expand. I think it'll be very challenging for new entrants to come in um, with no assets to get a, a rung on the ladder. Um, what was nice in the UK, something we don't really have in Ireland, was there was a council farms where you have an opportunity to rent a farm for five or 10 years, start small and you could grow. 
and I've, I've come across many brilliant farmers in the UK and that's how they started just through county council farms. I think sadly they've been slowly been sold off over the last number of years, but they were a great way of getting in, getting into the industry. Um, and we do need new blood and we need first generation as much as, um, you know, generations of, of farmer families, um, to keep, to keep new ideas. We always need to be challenged. So I think that's, that's where I'd like, that's where I don't know what would happen and government do say they'll have something for young farmers. So again, that's kind of wait and see for the detail. Okay. Um, we're almost up against our time limit. Um, but before we finish, um, you have knowledge of how agriculture and the industry works in the UK and also Ireland. Um, with, with your own experience of how the industry works in both countries, is there anything, you know, that good examples you've seen in the UK and good and examples in Ireland that maybe aren't present in the UK? Could you give us um, some thoughts on, on that? Yeah, I think for me, the, the biggest difference really, you know, say if you look at dairy, most of the businesses are still cooperatives in Ireland. Um, but that, that ethos of how they started, whereas in the UK, um, we have a large cooperative, but obviously it's, it's, you know, it's, it's started in Denmark. Um, so we kind of, some of that, some of that's been lost, I think over the years in UK agriculture. Also, we probably in the UK, there isn't a great history of working together, even though we, you know, we're a cooperative. Um, and there isn't the same level of kind of across industry support. So for me, the, the biggest difference I've, I've really noticed is, you know, for the likes of Chagas, Borbia, ICBF, I'm not saying every farmer loves them or they always do everything completely right, but having these organisations that do work on behalf of the industry and have some world-leading staff who do really care and for the industries they work in, I don't think that's always valued. And I think that's a, it's definitely something that you lack, for example, here. There isn't that one body. There's plenty of really good colleges and universities in the UK, um, but having those research farms, having those staffs, having a network of advisors, um, having that structure in place makes a big difference. And all a big difference, and all that does, you know, the government. Um, I suppose the difference in our agriculture is always important, and it's not a five-year planning cycle, really. You know, in the UK, you know, as long as you're in power these things stay going, but sometimes they change when the government changes, where I think there's a lot more longevity in some of the initiatives and, and the way things are invested in, in Ireland. So I think, yeah, I think that for me is the big difference. Um, having those bodies and don't get me wrong, you always should hold them to account by all means, but having those organizations that work on behalf of the industry, I don't, I don't think it's, don't think they're always appreciated. I don't think you realize what you have until it's gone sometimes. Okay. All right, Joseph, um, we're just at our limit there now. So um, on behalf of the ASA, I'd like to thank you for joining us this evening and um, for giving us your thoughts on agriculture in the UK and um, outlining, say, your career to date. Um, it's been great to kind of get an insight into the industry over there, especially um, in the current environment when, you know, it's undergoing a lot of changes and a lot of new developments. Um, it'll be interesting to see how it all pans out. No problem. It's been yeah, it's been it's been nice to nice to have the chat. Don't don't hear Irish accents too often. Um, it's been I'm I'm hoping to get home soon if this thing ever ever disappears. But um, yeah, tw twelve months. I'm hoping I don't start losing the accent. <laughs> 
All right, Joseph, we'll leave it there. Thanks very much. Cheers, John.